Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'd just like to welcome you to a podcast that I'm doing with one of the best conversational partners I've had in my whole life, and that's Jeff Madoff. You know, as we've talked over the years, and like most people in my life, I only met Jeff because I know Joe Polish. I have a one-person Rolodex. I just called Joe, and I said, who should I meet now? And so he introduces me to new people. But over the years, visits to New York, uh, being at Genius Network, uh, I've just found that uh, Jeff and I just really find it easy to talk about almost anything and talk about everything. So we've named this series Anything and Everything. Jeff, just before we were starting our very first podcast here, we were talking about whether people adjusted or didn't adjust to the technological changes that have occurred since last March when the COVID pandemic lockdown started around the world and people's normal way of doing their business life and normal way of doing their personal life got altered and very significantly for some people. Why don't you take a tack on, because we're both have a similar background. We're both from Northern Ohio, you from a industrial city and me from a farm. And we're both in our 70s. So we went through the 1950s, 1960s, part of the 20th century. And we've seen lots of changes. We've seen lots of adjustments. What's your take on what you've observed? Two or three things that are just noteworthy in your mind about marking what has happened during this one very, very unique, very unusual year. Well, first, Dan, thank you very much for the kind introduction. It's been great getting to know you. I feel I've gotten to know you, actually, but the conversations that we have, the directions we go into, whether we agree or not, there's a mutual, not only respect, but love of exploration, education. And what we do share totally is the importance of context and understanding context, both historically and I think psychologically, because that affects both like, you know, what we're talking about now in terms of COVID. So, you know, what we were talking about was Zoom and, you know, how did Zoom, which became a major beneficiary of COVID and uh, has, you know, I know a lot of people and there's lots of articles written about COVID fatigue. I think this would have been unbearable, you know, this past year, if not for COVID. Just the mere fact that we can do this, you know, and the conferences that we've both attended and and things both business-wise and socially that have made it so much more bearable. Somebody said to me, well, what do you see as the difference between being in person and being via Zoom? And I think, you know, People are two-dimensional. They're a lot thicker in person, <laughs> so you can actually put their your arms around them, which yeah. is a nice thing to do. You and Babs are both good huggers. You know, that's a nice thing. But I think that it's about adapting to a new situation because nobody had any idea how long we would be in this situation, but sometimes you need to adapt, and a lot of people are resistant to that. And where we were getting to is essentially that's not new, that there have mm-hmm. always been issues about adapting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when there was radio and then television, you know, and when television got well entrenched, movie theaters were afraid of television. And they were afraid of television because it was going to be playing movies, would it compete with them? Then television was resistant to cable. 
cables resistant to streaming and all the unbundling. And all we can be sure of is that change is a constant. Mm -hmm. So it's the context that you look at things in. I hadn't really thought about it until you brought it up was that in the 50s. So I grew up with radio. I was born in 44, 1944. And I don't think we actually got our television set until I was probably eight years old, black and white, three stations. And you pointed out something and I didn't realize how common it was for programs to actually open up with a parting of the curtains as if you were sitting in a theater. And that's kind of a hold on. It's, it's yeah, we're exploring something new, but we want to hold on to our blankie. There's something about the old medium, you know, of theater and And movies did that too, by the way. You would see a lot of movies from the 30s and 40s. The opening thing was a parting of the curtains as if you were in a live theater. And there's a lot of touchstones that people try to hold on to something from the old way of doing things, even when they're cautiously exploring a new medium. I think that you bring up the point, there's a phrase, evolution, not revolution. And I think that, you know, when you look at early television, and that notion of the curtains parting. Well, most of the early, not most, all actually, of the early TV stars, when you're looking at people such as Milton Berle, Jack Benny, you know, Burns and Allen, all of these people, they came from vaudeville. Mm-hmm. And vaudeville, there was a show, the curtains parted and the show started. Did they need to do that for television? Of course not, but it made it familiar. Mm. And that's that you know, touchstone that you're talking about. And I think, by the way, Zoom did some of those same things. You know, how do you replicate a meeting? And, you know, with technology, it can be either simplified or greatly complicated based on the features that are available to people. You know, the most often heard phrase is, you're on mute, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and people don't realize it and they're talking and you're on mute, you're on mute, you know. So I think that it's interesting to me, not only what you have to adapt to, but in a situation like COVID, also what's it going to be like afterwards? You were talking about how things are better for you in terms of doing conferences Mm -hmm. and the economic impact using Zoom than in person. So Mm -hmm. what about that? You know, someone who has made their living for 30 years doing in-person conferences, you seem to have adapted in lightning speed. Strategic coach, we have quarterly workshops for before COVID, we were up to about 26, 2700. And these are all business owners, 60 different industries. Probably we had 15, 20 different countries. We operated on the West Coast, LA, and then we had Chicago in the middle. We had Toronto and then we had London, England. So we could cover probably half the globe with people who are willing to travel. I remember it was 13th of March in 2020, my partner, Bab Smith, my partner in life and my partner in the business had been getting the team members together and say, what's attendance like across the spectrum? We have 16 coaches. So in a week, we might have that many events. We might have 16. And they were reporting that attendance at all the events was 50% down. It's an all-day all-day event, and they they were down 50%. And then we were getting worried calls in from clients saying that their teams were worried about them traveling, their families very, very worried about them 
with the actual virus. And so we made a snap decision that we would shut down till June. And what we did, Jeff, we just gave everybody a free quarter. We just said, everybody, March to May, we're just going to give you a free quarter. We're just going to move everything forward 90 days. And then we had to close down in Canada. We're much more closed down. So headquarters is Toronto. And we're much more closed down than all but a few of the American states. In my perspective, they've been waiting to see what the United States is going to do. I don't see any initiative whatsoever among the Canadian leaders of um, being bold or trying something out. They're just watching what Americans do and the Brits. So we realized that we had to immediately get our folks, all of our team. And in Toronto, we have about 85. Worldwide, we have about 115 team members. And we got everybody at home. And then we said, okay, we have to create a new product, Zoom product. And we're used to Zoom. We've been using it for five years. So it's not like it was a new technology. And I want you to talk about this. The newness of Zoom and its impact over the last year wasn't that we were using it. It's just that all of a sudden everybody else was using it. So, I mean, having a single telephone receiver isn't all that valuable until there's a second one somewhere, you know. <laughs> hello, hello, <Yeah>. hello. <laughs> hello. But all of a sudden, I always found that the kind of bummer about Zoom was that I would say, I'd like to do a Zoom call. Well, I don't use Zoom. And I got so insistent that you couldn't have a personal meeting with me unless it was on Zoom. And I said, think about it. You're going to get the benefit of actually talking to me and you will have acquired a capability before you get to me. I said, this is you're going to get double out of this actual talk. So talk about that. And has there been anything in our lifetime? And I'm thinking back to the 40s. Your birthday was what, 49? Uh, So we're both from the 40s. Has there ever been anything where in a single year, there was such an adaptation of a technology as we've seen over the last year? I don't know. I think that probably what had the fastest growth when uh, I was a kid, and this, by the way, is a guess, I don't have the numbers, is once the transition went from black and white to color TV. I'm thinking that swept yeah, the probably. nation pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, and then I think it was a much slower adoption. You know, I had recommended to you Tim Wu's book, which is Mm. great, called The Master Switch, where cable was in use for decades before the general populace got it, because it was basically for people out in the hinterlands and in valleys who couldn't get good reception for television. And that's how it was initially used, was just for people that had bad reception, you know. And then it became this major wave, a new pipeline for getting programming. And now we've made another huge shift, and that's streaming. You know, I remember talks about on-demand since I was a little kid. You know, I think one of the things that's really fascinating when you mentioned, you know, You need somebody on the other end of the phone to make the phone worthwhile, uh, unless you like talking to yourself. And I think it's really interesting because I'm guessing here, but when phones started, I'm sure there were people that said, no, no, I need to see somebody in person. I want to see the look on their face, you know, and now jump ahead a hundred years and here we are on Zoom. You can see the look on somebody's face, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that there has always been resistance to new technology, Mm -hmm. no matter how beneficial 
it happened. I'm sure people resisted cars because, you know, they still quantified the car power by horsepower. Yes. You know, so I think there's always resistance to change. And I think oftentimes the greater the resistance, the bigger the change that's looming. You had a lot of games in play when this happened to you. One is your teaching professor at the New School in New York City, and this was all in a live in-person classroom. You were also very, very involved in the production, video productions for major wardrobe brands like Ralph Lauren and Victoria's Secret. And that requires, first of all, intensely in-person production that was affected. And then the other thing is you're in the process of creating a Broadway play, and there was actually a date in the calendar, you know, that we've probably are right on when that was going to be possible, that your Broadway musical, which Babs and I had the great pleasure of seeing in workshop phase in New York with the cast, with the music, with the dancing, with the full script, all those industries in terms of the in-person teamwork and kind of the masses of people who come together, all that got shut down in a week. And New York was ground zero in the United States. I mean, New York got hit worse and was most affected of any major population center in the United States during that period. I think we did shift really quickly, but you had to shift three things at the same time. Yeah, I certainly want to try. Oh, the other the other one is that you were also marketing videos for companies that were putting themselves on the market to actually present themselves to the capital markets and the investment communities for possible purchase of their company. So you had four, (laughs) you had four different card games going. I had one card game going. (laughs) Yeah, it was challenging. It still is challenging, you know, because it's also not just a personal decision. So in September of 20, I talked to my management regarding the play and we were due to open at People's Light Theater outside of Philadelphia in Malvern in April. And I was really concerned that we weren't going to be out of COVID. And theater bookings are done a year, year and a half advance with theaters. I said to my management, we've got to move this till first or second quarter of 22. Because it's not going to happen in April. And so I pulled the trigger on that. And fortunately, because we're the largest production that theater is doing, they accommodated us and they are very supportive of the play, which we're very fortunate for. So we have moved it, which also meant the contracts we had in place, we had to renegotiate with some of the talent and all of that. But you cannot do in-person auditions. Actors' equity won't permit that at this point. There's no protocol set up for it. And, you know, you can't really audition dancers and singers effectively over Zoom. And there is a thing in person, a vibe that you pick up that doesn't happen in Zoom. So we're probably putting off casting until June or so, but we're putting together our creative team. Mm -hmm. And that's been another thing because the two people we already had signed who are Tony Award-winning talents... We had to hope that they would stay with us and be with us in 22 rather than 21. And they have, and they've resigned. And now we're in negotiation with costume and lighting designers 
also, by the way, Tony Award winners. And it's looking very positive there. So there are things that no matter what we wanted to do, we couldn't do because of certain regulatory bodies with theater and so on. And it's still not clear what the protocols are going to be. You know, we're trying to take advantage of the time, whether it's looking at the early drafts of the sets, which we have done, which are really cool. But, you know, there were a lot of challenges and workarounds that we had to do. You know, in terms of production, we did those kinds of productions you were talking about for private equity and investment banking firms. And I directed them from where I'm sitting. We shot in two cities in Tennessee, then we shot in Columbus and then in New York City. And I directed it all from here. And so we had local crews totally cut down in terms of size to minimize that. Everybody being COVID compliant with masks unless they were in front of the camera and all of that. And it worked and it worked really, really well because there are businesses like private equity that are doing really good in this market. And I'm curious, why do you think that your coaching business has flourished? You were telling me how you've done better in the first four months since COVID than uh, you did previously. So if we went back a year or so, the four months before COVID, We were just coming off our best year in 31 years. 2019 was our best year revenues. It was the best year of profits. So if I go from November, December, January, February, and that brings us up to the start of COVID in March, those four months that we've just finished are better than the four months we had pre-COVID. So the reason is the switchover to Zoom out of necessity I always say there's no incentive, like no alternative. And, and, you know, there wasn't an alternative. We had to do it, that or you just closed down business. And I wasn't into that. But what we realized, Jeff, is that because I've been in podcasting for a long time, you know, I've been podcasting for probably seven, eight years, and I've got a number of different series out there. We had built up a considerable worldwide audience who were very interested in strategic coach, but the travel was always too big an obstacle. I mean, I have clients from Singapore, and it's a five-day turnaround for them for one-day workshop if they come to L.A. or Chicago, or even if they go to London, the turnaround time is five, and that's four times a year. It's 20. It's just too big a deal. Australia, you know, Singapore, Mumbai, and India and that. All of a sudden, what we did, Jeff, is that we rethought it now that we have Zoom, What happens in a particular day isn't the crucial thing because you can now have greater frequency. With brand new workshops, we've gone to six times a year every two months and it's four hours, but then we give them three connector calls between the two months. So they get 18 events for the same price as people used to get for four events, okay? And they like the constant reinforcement, like we're talking to them, somebody's talking to them because we have a big team and we have a lot of coaches. It's like every two weeks, they're getting reminded of what their goals are and they're measuring what kind of progress. So what we're noticing is that there's a tremendous enthusiasm. We have a model in coach, which is thinking of your business going 10 times. In other words, that if thinking about doubling your business actually is more problematic than thinking 10 times. And the reason is with two times, you're tempted to hold on to most of what you're doing, just work a little harder. Whereas with 10 times, you got to have a whole new model. 
Well, without asking for it, we got a whole new model, and now I can see us going to 10,000. You know, 10 years, maybe 15 years, we'll have 10,000. I couldn't see how we could do it before. I always said, you know, sometime in the future, we're going to come up with a new model, and I wasn't expecting it to be 2020 and 2021. But now that we have it, I say, let's go for it now. We've just been given a gift. Don't talk about going back to normal. We aren't going back to normal. We're creating a new normal. We're not going back to a new normal. So you and I, from the 50s, there's a big difference in life. Personally, there's a big life difference in business life from the 1950s and what you and I are experiencing right now. But we've adjusted to all this over you know a 70-year period, at least. We're pure entrepreneurs, and most of the people we know are pure entrepreneurs, and you're teaching people to be entrepreneurs, and I'm teaching people to be better entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurism is about uh, adjusting to the check writers. Probably the most similar in terms of your coaching via Zoom is my teaching via Zoom. So the good things are that attendance was actually up. In some cases, the students didn't even bother rolling out of bed. (laughs) They're sitting at the end of their bed with their laptop. And guests were not only more available, they were more available anywhere in the world. And that was also a really good thing. And kind of eager to be available, too. That's right. However, there are certain things that happen in person that are really hard, if not impossible, to replicate in Zoom. What do you see as those obstacles? I think humans are really different in terms of what makes them comfortable about communicating with people. You know, I grew up out in the country, so, (laughs) you know, so any human contact, regardless of what form is, (laughs) you know, is an improvement on what I grew up with. But the thing is, what's missing is the need for people to socialize. So the whole social aspect that surrounds our program, coming in the night before, having dinner in one of the downtown areas, you know, in their big cities, or, you know, Chicago, L.A., Toronto, London, those are our four main cities. They're great global hubs. All the cities are global hubs. It's easy to get in and out. And they have great hospitality. They have great nightclubs. They have great restaurants. And the other thing is people have strong social connections, and that's not available. That's not available. So I think that's the biggest thing. The other thing is that there's a lot of people who are uncomfortable on camera more than I realize. They're very, very self-conscious. They're looking at a screen that has now up to 49. It's got 49 squares on it. And I think that they get distracted by it. So the people who don't like it, I think you can't make any general comments about them. And the people who really love it, I think there's something nervous system unique about this. This is what I've discovered. I think that this is the whole kicking off point for a whole new field of sociology, psychology, neural research and everything about who adapted really fast and who didn't adapt real fast. I'm pretty easy with technology because I think technology is just teamwork that's been made automatic. It started with teamwork like theater. Movies couldn't have started unless they had the vast skills that were already in theater, you know, backstage theater, 
So my sense is we develop skills in one area and then something new comes along and those same skills translate across the border. So I think about the shift that happened from film to digital image capture. There were a number of people, cinematographers in particular, and directors who refused to adapt and were not interested. And I think part of the reason they weren't interested is it was learning a whole new technology, which initially was inferior. That gap has pretty much been bridged. It's really interesting because of that resistance. A lot of people kind of dropped out of the business. Another thing that happened, not quite concurrently, but not too many years before, was the advent of mobile phones. All of a sudden, you were in touch no matter where you were. And that wasn't a thing, you know, from the middle 80s and before. I mean, I didn't get my first mobile phone until the latter half of the 90s. The idea of always being available was not attractive to me. So there are both the technology, but also the as you were saying, the psychological impacts of these things, because it's new challenges if you're having to make that switch or a new way of living, if you've always got a phone and you're always kind of available. You know, it's a really interesting kind of a shift. But also, I just wanted to touch on the reasons that some people are uncomfortable on Zoom. You love theater and you're up on stage performing, you know, when you're doing strategic coach as I'm performing in front of the classroom, one of the things that I certainly like is when I get a laugh. (laughs) You know, when you've got a hundred people in a Zoom situation, they're all on mute. You don't hear that. And if you have them off mute, it's way too distracting because of the other stuff that happens. And so there is a feedback that's not Mm -hmm. happening that I really enjoy. And I have friends, magicians, comedians, singers, and actors who have all done performances on Zoom, and it kind of leaves them cold, you know, because you're not getting that feeling that you get in a live situation. Do you think that your background in performance is something that has also helped you? You know, I come from a family of introverts. When I was about 14, I said, you know, I'm not going to go anywhere. You know, I had some of the same characteristics because... It's hard to be an extrovert when you live with a whole bunch of introverts. (laughs) You don't develop your extroversion skills. So I talk the local Toastmasters. Toastmasters is a worldwide organization that shows mainly adults, business people, how to talk in public. You know, you start off with a two-minute speech, a five-minute speech. So I had about two or three years, and it was painful. I mean, it was painful for me to do it. You know, and then I majored in theater when I first started university. And I said, I've got to get over this discomfort of speaking in public. I was in my 30s before I I realized a very fundamental lesson that it's not about you. (laughs) I mean, when you're performing, it's not about you. Everybody in the audience really wishes you well because they just don't want to be having a very uncomfortable 15 minutes or hour, you know, no, nobody wants to be in an audience with a performer who's uncomfortable being in front of them, you know. So there's this thing, you get to a point where it isn't about you, it's what's happening to everybody and you're contributing and they're contributing. So that was a real breakthrough for me. And, you know, we train coaches, you know, we have 16 of our own coaches besides me, and they've all gone through a period of adjustment 
And I said, you know, it's not about you. Treat it like a conversation, you know, and keep it flowing like a good conversation, which requires listening, which requires asking questions. What about you? You come from blue collar, Akron. Well, you know, in class, all the way back to elementary school, I would joke around a lot. Although that was encouraged at home, <laughs> it wasn't necessarily encouraged in school. So I was the kind of kid that teachers either really liked or really didn't like. But back in, I think it was fifth or sixth grade, I wrote a play. And I haven't thought about this till started talking. And it was a play about history and the different presidents that a kid falls asleep in a museum and he wakes up and Washington is alive and Lincoln is alive. And you hear from these different presidents and he asks questions. And, you know, now that I think of it, damn it, Dan, I'm going to sue Knight at the museum. I didn't realize, you know, this was 60 years ago. But, you know, there's something quite fun about being in front of an audience, getting applause, getting yeah. laughter. That's fun. You know, I enjoy that. I enjoy the reward of that. And that's fun mm -hmm. for me. So I think, you know, being someone that always cracked jokes and did those kinds of things, it was pretty comfortable for me to be teaching, to be in front of the camera and doing that. And I realized as a director, this is a person I got older, that the best and most important thing I can do as a director, aside from executing the overall vision, is to make sure that the talent in front of the camera feels safe. Because if you don't feel safe, you're not going to express. And if you're not going to express, it's not going to be very interesting to the audience. So like any other business, if you're a comedian, you don't get a laugh. That product isn't working. <laughs> you know, you get immediate market feedback when you're in front of a live audience. And I think that's kind of a fascinating aspect of it also. I think with live entertainment, live teaching, coaching, and everything like that, if you're really good, you become unusually alert to shifts in mood, to what kind of feedback's coming, if something's landing or it's not landing. And I think if I can take that and jump across the line into entrepreneurism, that the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones who notice small shifts in the marketplace. They notice very small shifts in mood and they say, oh, what's that all about? You know, what's all that about? Why is there a shift here? I wasn't noticing the same energy as I was getting three minutes ago, what's shifted in the last three minutes? And I think you test really fast. I think that you try things out really fast. So I'd like to make a connection between the type of skills you pick up by being a live performer to being a much more alert, curious, responsive and resourceful entrepreneur. Well, it's fascinating. You're absolutely right. And I think that when you are an entrepreneur, you, of course, have to know that there's a market for the goods or services that you are selling. And you can't be the only one in love with your goods or your service. Likewise, performing in front of a live audience, you got to know your market. You got to, as they say, read the room. So that's really a critical skill to develop. So whether you are an entrepreneur, and by the way, I posit that a performer is an entrepreneur. Sure. You know, they're creating their own livelihood out of their idea. And their idea may be singing or acting or comedy or music, 
But the point is that they need to know their market. They need to know that there's a market for the talents that they have. And they also need to be able to iterate if things seem off and aren't working and got to figure out why and how to tack accordingly. So I think that there's a lot Mm -hmm. they have in common. And I wouldn't put up the wall between performance and entrepreneurship, although most people don't look at it as entrepreneurship. I very much believe that it is. Yeah. And I think it's show business. I said, you're safer starting with the model of show business if you're planning an entrepreneurial career than starting with any other skill set that would be more backstage. I think before you can have a profitable backstage, you've got to have a real finely tuned understanding of front stage and front stage value. And a great example of that is Steve Jobs. Yeah. You know, when he got on stage, he knew his audience and what he was more than anything was a great brand steward. And what that meant was he was a great storyteller about why this new iPhone or this new iPod or whatever it was that was new was the greatest thing ever to be introduced. And Apple always had these different modifiers that went along with their products. And there was always a story. So you never heard about, here's how fast the processor is. You never heard, here's the screen resolution. What you heard is the story and why this is so cool. That's what made people want to buy it. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is not a line between that entrepreneurship and that kind of mindset that you need and the showbiz mindset that you need. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Nike. It's the same thing. You know, it's all about the seduction through story. Well, Jeff, I sat in on a really great class recently of your class at the New School, and it was on branding and what constituted a great brand and what were some of the great brands that people remembered. So I think that'll be a great jumping off point because, first of all, there's a lot of misconceptions of what branding really, really is. So we can actually go through your experience because you've worked in teamwork with some of the greatest brand makers in show business, certainly in the fashion industry and now in the music industry. I mean, your play is about Lloyd Price, who arguably is the bridge from a completely different genre that preceded rock and roll to rock and roll that Lloyd Price. And we can talk about your show in terms of branding in the music world and in the fashion world. And also you have a deep interest, and I do too, in the history of technology and what branding means in the world of technology and how what's happened during the last year is really going to disadvantage some people's brands and it's actually going to take some other brands and make them more globally dominant. Well, I think, Dan, that you are demonstrating very well the name you came up with for this podcast, which is Anything and Everything, because I think that's what we're going to be exploring, and I love exploring it with you. So thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate it.